But today we're going to be talking about the ordinances of the church. We're going to be going through several different scriptures today as we talk about what these ordinances are. As many of you know, I've talked about it before, I came from a mostly Lutheran background with a little bit of Catholic influence. And although I was confirmed Lutheran, I didn't really apply myself during my confirmation classes to really learn about my faith. And so that led to a, a kind of a whole bunch of different thoughts I had about different spiritual things. And when I got saved as an adult, I was 23 years old. And I got saved in an independent Pentecostal church whose pastor was Assembly of God. And I found out that many of the things that we did in the Lutheran church and many of the things that we learned and many of the things that, and rituals and ceremonies that we went through didn't really apply anymore. And so there's a little bit of a learning curve there. And that was the first thing I noticed about this church I got saved in in comparison to the Lutheran church is that there wasn't any ritual involved. There wasn't a lot of liturgy. There wasn't a lot of ceremony. It was, it was, it was very free in their worship. And, you know, say what you want about the older mainline denominations like Lutheran or Catholic, but, you know, they do have some truly beautiful ritual and liturgy involved with them. And when you dig down into that and you actually understand it, it's always an attempt to preach the gospel message and all that ceremony and liturgy. And some people, you know, find comfort in that. They, they find comfort in, in routine and ritual and liturgy. And because Sunday to Sunday, you always know what to expect. And I know that many of the people here, they come from that similar kind of background. Some of you used to be in a church where there was a lot more ritual and a lot of set ways of doing church that had been passed down from generation to generation over hundreds of years and almost thousands of years in the case of the Catholic Church. And today we're going to talk about two of those rituals that we still recognize here in the Pentecostal Church today. And they're found within the Assembly of God churches and they are known as the two ordinances of the church. And as we get into that, let's ask God's blessing over our time in studying his word and his ways this morning. Father God, I just ask, Lord, that you just help us to understand what these, these ordinances and what these rituals mean to us this morning, how they point to Jesus and how they proclaim him to the world. Help me during this time to explain it in such a way that it makes sense and not bore people to death, Father. Lord God, I just ask this in your name. Amen. So this morning I'm going to try to explain two of the rituals that we have here as an Assembly of God churches. And pretty much throughout Protestant churches, these are the same. And these rituals are known as the ordinances of the church. So the first question we should tackle this morning is what the heck is an ordinance of the church? Because when you and I think of an ordinance, we think about some local rule or law that is passed that makes everybody's life better. For example, here in Whitehall, we have an ordinance. It's not very well um, um, enforced, but we have an ordinance of how long your grass can grow in your yard before you're going to get a ticket. You know, you have to mow your yard, you have to keep it looking decent and everything, and if you don't, then the police can come and, and give you an ordinance violation. Another ordinance violation, we have winter coming. If you don't shovel your sidewalk, you can get an ordinance violation because of that. We have a tendency to think as, of ordinance as, as having to do with law. But that's not the kind of ordinance we're talking about this morning. I would define it like this. Ordinance is a term for religious rituals 
whose intent is to demonstrate an adherence faith. So this is a demonstration or a ritual that we do that shows the world what we believe. And for many of us who came from mainline churches like Lutheran or Catholic or Presbyterian and things like that, we're very used to different rituals for different things that we do within the church. And those rituals have been established, as we said, for hundreds of years. And compared to those other expressions of Christianity, the Assembly of God is only 102 years old this year. And we don't really have a lot of ritual within our belief system and in our church services. So a little church history here. Back in 1917, when the General Council was held, the first General Council, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, they came up with 16 fundamental beliefs for all those who wanted to align themselves with this new expression of Christianity called the Assemblies of God. Assemblies of God was birthed out of Charles Parnham's Pentecostal revival at the turn of the century, and, and the people there that experienced this revival had experienced a religious freedom like they had never felt before. So many of them saw tradition and ritual to be kind of dangerous in, in quenching that spirit. So they didn't want to quench the moving of the Holy Spirit, so they eliminated all the ritual and ceremony except for these two things that they called the ordinances of the church. And these ordinances, which are observed by most Christian churches, are Holy Communion and Baptism. And we're going to talk about both of those today. These two ordinances serve to really identify what we believe as a fellowship and how we use them to point to Jesus. So this morning we're going to look at these two rituals that we still follow in the assembly. So let's tackle Holy Communion. I'm sure just about everyone here has been here in this church or at another church when communion is being served. The way it is served is dependent upon what kind of church you're going to. Even within our fellowship, you can see it done very differently or very prescribed and very realistically. Personally, I prefer to change it up a little bit, but there are some pastors that are going to read from 1 Corinthians 11 every single time they have communion, and they're going to do it exactly the same way every time. But I've also seen it done in a very free way where they simply pass out some bread and they pass out a common cup of wine and they all pass the bread around and break off pieces and they drink from a common cup and, and everything like that. It's not so much how you do it. The important thing with communion is that you understand what is being done, why it's being done, and respect Jesus when you do it. So a little baptism, or excuse me, a little uh, background to why we celebrate communion. Now, the communion that we celebrate in our churches today and throughout Christianity is a fulfillment of the Jewish holy day called Passover. Passover in ancient Judaism was one of the most sacred times on their religious calendar. And the Passover meal celebrated the beginning of the Exodus from Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12, Moses has been in this spiritual sparring match with the Pharaoh of Egypt for a very long time. Nine different times God told Moses to appear before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. You remember that Israel at this time, they had been in slavery for 400 years. God raises up Moses, sends him to Pharaoh, and keeps telling him, let my people go. Pharaoh would refuse. God would send a plague. 
Pharaoh would say, oh, I got God mad, I better let him go. But then some, for some reason, Pharaoh would change his mind and would not let him go. Nine times they've gone through this kind of a process. And the tenth and final time, Moses told him that this was the last chance that you get. And Pharaoh still refused to let them go. So Moses left, and God gave Moses a very dire warning of what was coming next. That God was going to kill the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. However, if the people of Israel obeyed God and slaughtered a young lamb without spot or blemish and placed the blood of the lamb over the top of their door frames, God's death angel would pass over them on the way to go to Egypt and they would leave them unharmed. They were then to eat this lamb that they killed and they would eat it with bitter herbs symbolizing the bitterness and cost of the sin that, God, that Egypt was committing against them and the cost of God bringing them out of Egypt. They were also to eat unleavened bread, symbolizing the haste in which they left, that the bread wouldn't even have time to rise. They were to eat the meal fully clothed, like they were just getting ready to run immediately on a long journey. This was all part of the Passover meal. And most of us knew what happens next. The death angel comes and kills the firstborn of Egypt. But over the houses of Israel, the death angel passed over. Therefore, that's why they called this feast Passover. And that's what Jesus and his disciples are celebrating when Jesus uses this biblical account of Israel leaving their time of slavery and going into the promised land. And it shows us the true meaning of Passover that the Lamb of God was going to be slain for us. And that his death, and so that the angel of death or spiritual death would pass over us when the time comes for us to meet God. Jesus, in this case, used leavened bread. In this case, and because leaven was a symbol of sin in the Old Testament, Jesus using the unleavened bread showed that he was a sinless one. That because there is no leaven in this bread, the sinless one was being broken for our sin. And the wine symbolizes the blood of the lamb being shed so that death has no power over us. So let's lead, read about the first communion. We're going to read from Luke's gospel in chapter 22, verse 13. It said that they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So the big idea here is that communion is all about Jesus. That's why we continue this ritual and this observance to this day, and we do it in remembrance of him. Jesus' death 
Sacrifice and resurrection on the cross was a fulfillment of that Passover meal given to the Jews in the Old Testament. Now that's the biblical explanation of, of communion. And there are four separate beliefs within the uh, church of Jesus Christ concerning what the bread and wine represent and what happens during that ritual of communion. And I bring this up because most of us, we kind of live in a Lutheran Mecca around here, right? Just about everybody is Lutheran, and they are taught something a little different than what we are taught. And so if you went to a Lutheran Confirmation or a Catholic Catechism, you'll have learned something a little different. And I just wanted to quickly review that this morning. Let's look at the Catholic belief first. The Roman Catholic Church believes that with the blessing of the priest... The bread and the wine transform into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. This belief is called transubstantiation. We don't believe that in the Protestant church because it would violate several scriptures. Most importantly, Hebrews 9.25-28, which says, Nor did he, he being Jesus, nor did Jesus enter heaven to offer himself again and again. The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to all those who are waiting for him. And this is why, as Bible-believing Protestant believers, we don't believe in transubstantiation. If the bread actually became the literal body and, blood, and, and the wine became the blood, then every single time we have communion, we would be subjecting Jesus to pain again. We would be breaking his body. We would be pouring out his blood. And that's, that's why we don't believe in transubstantiation. Hebrews specifically says here he suffered once. And because it was God himself on that cross, his one-time sacrifice covers our sin for all eternity. Amen. That makes sense, right? Amen. Okay. Another belief um, about this is seen in the Lutheran church. This one is called consubstantiation. And that holds that the physical body of Jesus is in, around the bread, but not in the bread. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of in and around it spiritually, but it is not actually becoming the physical body and blood of Jesus. And this, this is an idea created by Martin Luther, who is the father of Protestant Christianity. You have to remember that Luther, when he came up with this, was a Catholic priest. He had been trained that transubstantiation was the fact. So Luther kind of took a half a step back from it and made up the, thing, the idea of consubstantiation because really he wasn't interested in, in, in creating an entire new theology. He just wanted to step back and say the righteous will live by faith. That was his central message, and he, he didn't want to get into the weeds on everything else. So he created the idea of, of consubstantiation to step away from that whole idea of transubstantiation. So that's what the Lutherans believe. There is another idea or belief. This one is called the Swigilian or memorial idea. 
And I'm just going to bring it up briefly because it's not, it's not really taught as much anymore. And that is that the idea is simply a memorial service. The bread and the wine have, are just symbols. There's no significant spiritual significance to it. It's just something we go through on, you know, one or, once or twice a month just to remember who Jesus was. Our fellowship, the assemblies, rejects that as well. What we follow and teach and preach is a principle called the Calvinist or Reformed view of communion. The Calvinist and Reformed view holds that while we observe and celebrate the um, communion, the Holy Spirit is present in a very unique and a very powerful way that you do not see in any other time in a church service. This is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that we should examine ourselves before we partake in Holy Communion. Because if we take communion in an unworthy manner, and we'll get into that in a minute, then we can very well grieve the Holy Spirit to the point of even risking death. You see this in 1 Corinthians 11 when it says that, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. Now he's going to describe what he means by unworthy manner in verse 29. He says, For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Now we see this idea of what it means to sin against the Holy Spirit in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You remember, they sell a field. They see Barnabas first sell a field. He gives everything to the church that he made from it. Well, Ananias and Sapphira were not going to be outdone. They go, they sell a field, but they hold back part of the proceeds to themselves, but tried to make Peter believe that they gave him everything because they wanted to look good in front of other people. And Peter pointed at him and said, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? You're not lying to me. I'm nobody. I'm, I'm Peter. I'm a rock. I'm the one who denied Jesus. You're not lying to me. You're lying to the Holy Ghost. And you remember they dropped dead. you imagine what would happen if people started dropping dead when they gave their offering? <laughs> that would put the fear of God in the church, wouldn't it? <laughs> and so the same, Paul is using that same kind of principle here when he's talking about sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And what he means when he says recognizing the body and blood of the Lord, it's taking that moment and examining ourselves before we take of it and saying, you know, all this, this junk I've gone through in the last weeks or, mo or month or however long it's been since you've last taken communion, all this stuff that God has been hammering on me about, all these things that I know in my life that don't please Him, I want to give that to Him right now. I want to keep my account short with God so that when I take communion, the Holy Spirit can be pleased and not be grieved um, in my life. It isn't something just small. It's not something like, if I yelled at Tammy this morning and didn't repent and I took communion, that I'm going to drop dead. He's not saying something like that. He's talking about, again, making sure your accounts with God are caught up. And we have that moment to repent of any known sin and ask Jesus to help us to live for him. Excuse me. So communion is to be taken seriously. 
It's to be taken soberly, and it's to be taken in much fear of the Lord. And more importantly, even reverence and appreciation for what Jesus has done for us and continues to do for us. Now let's look at the second ordinance of the church called baptism. The English word baptism comes from the Greek word baptismo, which means to ritually wash somebody and make them clean. It speaks to the total immersion of a person so that all the dirt can fall off and they, they can rise back out of the water clean. Later in the history of the Old Testament, we start seeing baptism spoken of. Josephus and, and extra-biblical records and historical records talk about non-Jews who would want to become Jews, they would actually baptize them when they decided to become a Jewish person. The first biblical example that we see of that is John the Baptist, baptizing people to get them right before God um, to prepare them for receiving the Messiah when he would come. Even Jesus submitted himself to baptism. Even though Jesus didn't have to get right with God, he still identified with us and, and submitted to being baptized by John in order to fulfill all righteousness, as he said. So what I'm talking about here is not just going through the physical motions of baptism. Baptism is meant to be a highly spiritual experience that we do out of obedience to God when we repent of our sins. We repent of our sins, we die to ourselves. we enter into the grave symbolized by the water and rise again into new life. That is what baptism is supposed to represent. So, what's the procedure? What's, what are the rules about baptism? We'll start off by asking who can be baptized and, at, and is baptism required for salvation? Well, the first part, what is the requirement to be baptized? Well, as you see that in Mark, um, excuse me, Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew 28, 18, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of, or to the very end of the age. So we see some prerequisites here. Prerequisite number one is that you need to be a disciple. You need to be somebody who has accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The word disciple means that you are a voluntary learner and that you will now sit at the feet of the master who's going to teach you how to live and, and be molded into a specific job or function. The closest English equivalent that we have to that is the word apprentice. My brother went through, uh, he uh, was just posting this week on Facebook. He, uh, him and I go back and forth because I'm going to college to you know, be able to make a little bit more money and get a different job. And he went through an apprenticeship and he's looking at a, getting a six-figure job right now and running a, an entire plant at a hospital or their power plant at a hospital. So that's going to be like a six-figure job if he gets it. And here I am slaving in school and I'll be lucky to get 55000 or 60000 when I graduate if I were to work full-time. And But he went through that apprenticeship process. And just like a disciple, an apprentice is one who lives with a master of his craft, and he learns his craft by watching and being taught by this master. 
A disciple is a spiritual apprentice. When we get baptized, we are voluntarily entering into a spiritual apprenticeship that will last the rest of our earthly lives, where we sit at the feet of our master Jesus so that he can teach us how to become sons and daughters of God. And we let him mentor us for this new role in our new ministry that he has for us within his church. Baptism is a physical ritual or act in describing and showing the world an inward change that we are voluntarily becoming this disciple of Jesus. We call that change being born again. We, we have died to our old lives, we've died to our old plans, we've died to our own desires, so that we, now we live for only what Jesus wants. Another highly debated subject within the Christian church is when we get baptized. We've already answered that in explaining what it is in Matthew 28. Baptism represents us symbolically desiring to follow Christ into the grave by being totally submersed with water and being risen again in our resurrection life. And that's an important point. I don't know if you, you, you realize this, but your eternal life didn't start or does not start when you die from this one. We think that we enter into eternal life when we die. Your eternal life began when you accepted Christ. You are living in, you are as much a son and daughter of God and living in his favor as you will be in heaven. And so when you gave your heart to Jesus, you started your, um, you started your um, eternal life. And that's why we in the assemblies follow the immersion method of baptism and only baptize people who are old enough to understand what being born again really means. And some people here, you may have been baptized as children. It was one of the things that freaked out my mom a little bit when I got saved is I wasn't going to baptize my daughters. We dedicate children in our church. The reason we don't baptize children is because generally most children aren't really going to be able to mentally and cognitively understand the significance about what they're doing until they get significantly older. I know there's some churches that will baptize a child when they're four or five and all that. I would be probably, say, eight, nine, ten, before they really start to understand um, what they're, they're um, doing in the Spirit. That's just my opinion. So the obvious question is, if I was baptized as a baby or a young child, should I be baptized again now that I've come into relationship with Jesus and I know what I'm doing now? And I would say the answer is yes. You should be baptized. The second question we touched on a moment ago was, is baptism required for salvation? I would say no with a stipulation, with a huge asterisk next to that, that, that no. The stipulation is that you are commanded to be baptized if you have come into faith in Jesus Christ. And if you are putting it off, I would ask why. Are you ashamed of Jesus? Are you ashamed of, of, of making that kind of proclamation to your family and friends? Do you fear the opinion of man more than you desire to follow Jesus? I've had some people tell me they're afraid of the water. I said, well, you smell good, so you took a shower today. You, you can handle being dunked into, into a, a small river or pool. Those are some questions you're going to have to ask yourself if you say that you are now a follower of Jesus, but you're refusing to be baptized. Is it 
it really is and should be your first public act of obedience in following Christ. I know many, many churches who have baptismals that are always filled. And if somebody gives their heart to Jesus in a service, they bring them into a room, they change into a gown, and they put them right in the baptismal tank immediately. Another question that comes up, well, who can baptize? Does it have to be a priest? Does it have to be a pastor? Does it have to be an elder? Any believer in Jesus can baptize another. You see this throughout the book of Acts. People are baptizing people all over the place. Even Paul said, I didn't actually baptize that many people. It was other people baptizing. Biblically, any Christian can baptize another, although usually you see it um, being done by pastors and, and elders and priests and all that. But any Christian can baptize another. And finally, the baptismal formula. This varies within Christianity a little bit, but Jesus was very specific in saying that we should be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit so that we recognize and worship all three members of the triune Godhead as equal and as one. So how would we do that here? If we would have a baptismal here, I would ask you to make a public confession of your faith to Jesus before the church, and then I would immerse you in water. It doesn't mean you have to preach a sermon. It doesn't mean you have to give a soliloquy. Ugh, can't talk this morning. Soliloquy that would rival Charles Spurgeon or something. But I would want to hear a public definition of faith in Jesus Christ. And then we would baptize you. So these are the two ordinances of the church. And as we have been doing, I'm just going to open it up to any questions you might have about communion or baptism.